One of the most critical decisions in our entire lives is choosing who you will allow to influence you. We are being influenced every single second of every single day in both big and small ways. We're being influenced from the time we come out of the womb until we take our last breath. The main question I want us to wrestle with today is this. Who is influencing you? What's up, friends? My name is Theo Davis. I'm the digital pastor here at Restore, and we're starting a brand new series of messages titled The Story of Esther, How an Orphan Girl Disrupted an Empire. We're going to walk through Esther's story from start to finish and draw some principles we can apply to our lives, even though we lived centuries apart. If we aren't careful about who we're allowing to influence us, our lives can be derailed. You may not even realize who you're allowing to influence you. Yes, friends absolutely influence us. That is obvious. But what about social media? Who you follow on Instagram, TikTok, and Facebook influences you. You have willingly subscribed and given them permission to say or show you something on a daily basis as you scroll through your screen. Not only that, these apps learn whose posts you tend to linger on, and they're designed to show you even more of what you linger on. You linger on drama-filled posts, guess what? The app is going to keep suggesting that kind of stuff for you. News programs influence us. If you only watch conservative media, you're going to be influenced a certain way. If you only watch liberal media, you're going to be influenced a certain way. Even aside from that, the people we do or do not rub shoulders with influences us. I used to have a really harsh view of men who were incarcerated until I began leading a church service for the men in the Philadelphia House of Corrections every Friday night for four years rubbing shoulders with them, tweaked how they could influence me. I used to have a really harsh view of people who were homeless as lazy drug addicts until I started rubbing shoulders with them and discovering there's more to their story, and I began trying to serve them. Your attention is so valuable to so many because they want to influence you. Today, as we kick off our series, we're going to learn about the power of influence, both positive and negative. Over the next five weeks, we're going to walk through five key moments in the story of Esther. But I want to encourage you to join our reading plan for the book of Esther, because we'll be sending out text messages to you every Monday through Friday, so you can read a small portion of the book. It only takes about 30 minutes to read the whole book, but we're breaking it up for you. While we discuss the main points on Sundays, I promise you will have a much fuller experience if you read the entire book with us. Just text the word Bible to the number you see on the screen to activate those morning texts. And each week we are going to learn a key lesson. However, the book of Esther has some incredible themes that you'll only learn if you stick with us for all five weeks. So make sure to keep coming back. Now, another side note, if you've grown up 
within Christian community for any length of time, you've likely heard parts of the story of Esther. In fact, the main time people hear about the story is in children's ministry. Therefore, we tend to think of this story as uh, a kid's story. However, Esther's story is filled with very mature themes and topics that are often brushed past when we summarize the story for children. But this story in its whole was recorded for us for a reason. Uh, another, one last thing before we jump in. The story of Esther is also initially a perplexing addition to the Bible at first glance for a whole other reason. Check this out. Throughout the entire book, God is not mentioned or referenced once. There is no prayer to God. God never speaks in this book. There are no songs of, or, or, to or about God. You would, none of the things you would expect to find as part of the canon of Scripture is here. It's completely absent. It's strange at first. That is until you realize the writer of this book, who's anonymous, by the way, made this literary choice on purpose. No, we never see God actively moving in this story like we do in the epics of Moses or David. But we see clues that he isn't far off. And he is indeed part of the story from start to finish. Much like much like our own lives. Esther has highs and lows due to the culture she finds herself in and the people she's around, which is why I believe we can all learn so much together over the next few sessions. Now, let's go ahead and jump in. The book opens with the king throwing a multi-day banquet filled with tons of drinking. Let's go ahead and jump into the story here. On the seventh day of the feast, King Xerxes was high in spirits because of the wine. He told seven eunuchs who attended him to bring Queen Vashti to him uh, with the royal crown on her head. He wanted the nobles and other men to gaze on her beauty, for she was a very beautiful woman. But when they conveyed the king's orders to Queen Vashti, she refused to come. This made the king furious, and he burned with anger. Now, Queen Vashti had every right to be frustrated and angered by the king's request. Why? Because women are more than mere flesh for men's amusement. She was clearly not part of these festivities until the king wanted to just parade her around like a pet. Now, if you had good advisors, mentors, friends at this moment, they might pull you aside after you've sobered up from the alcohol and remind you, hey, God created women to be helpers. Uh, don't object to uh, uh, her, her wanting to push you aside right now because of how you're treating her. You should probably apologize to the queen. However, these advisors were too worried about what would happen if other women heard about the queen standing up for herself. The book continues in Esther chapter 1, verse 16 through 18. Mamukin answered the king and his nobles, Queen Vashti has wronged not only you, 
but the entire nobility, every citizen throughout your empire. Women everywhere will begin to despise their husbands when they learn what Queen Vashti has refused to appear before the king. Before this day is out, wives all over the king's nobles throughout the Persian and throughout Persia and media will hear what the queen did and will start treating their husbands the same way. There will be no end to their contempt and anger. Talk about drama. Do you see what Mamukin is doing here? He's not concerned about the king's relationship with his bride. Uh, he, he is concerned that Vashti is standing up for her own decency and will inspire women everywhere to do the same. He was also concerned that the balance of power that men had over women would be upset if the king didn't make an example of her. I was thinking about just summarizing this next part for you, but you have to read the words for yourself. Esther chapter 1, verses 19 through 20, it says this. So if it pleases the king, we suggest that you issue a written decree, a law of the Persians and Medes that cannot be revoked. It should be ordered that Queen Vashti be banished forever from the presence of King Xerxes, and that the king should choose another queen more worthy than she. When this decree is published throughout the king's vast empire, husbands everywhere, whatever their rank, will receive proper respect from their wives. The king was quickly influenced into doing exactly what they told him to do. Vashti was banished and the men could all breathe a sigh of relief. These men were afraid of losing power they had over women. So they negatively influenced the king to keep women from being valued as equals and more valued as property. So fast forward. The king banishes the queen uh, just as the advisor suggested, but the king eventually cooled off and sobered up. Uh, and his, he was realizing he had no queen anymore. So his advisors, uh, they came up with this brilliant suggestion. Listen to Esther chapter 2. It keeps, it keeps going and saying this. So the personal attendant suggested, let us search uh, the empire to find beautiful young virgins for the king. Let the king appoint agents in each of the provinces to bring these beautiful women into the royal harem at the fortress of Susa. Haggai, the king's eunuch uh, in charge of the harem, will see that they are all given beauty treatments. After that, the young woman, the young woman who pleases the king will be made queen instead of Vashti. Now, pause here for a second. This is the part of the story that gets lost on many Christians. Maybe you've heard this story as a child uh, and you were told the king was just holding a beauty contest, but I'm afraid it is so much more tragic than that. The king ordered that virgin women, women who had not yet had sex, from all over the empire be taken for a year of beauty treatments. And one by one, night after night, 
they would be a different girl would be brought to his bedchambers and he would sleep with them afterwards the woman would be taken to the harem in the palace it's a separate part of the household reserved just for the wives and the concubines and the female servants these young women who could be as young as 16 and as old as 29 would be trapped in the palace for the remainder of their lives, unable to marry, to have their own lives, or to leave the palace ever. They were now objects for the king's lust. Today, we would call this human trafficking or sexual slavery. What is happening here is one of the most broken depictions of human relationship that we can imagine. It was, it was tough being a woman back then, and it's still tough being a woman today. Can, can I get an amen through the screen? Uh, as a son of a single mom who saw firsthand everything she had to do simply to survive in our world today, uh, I'm grateful for every woman out there. We'll talk more about this in a moment. Let's now transition. That's the setup for the king, the, the first kind of character in our story. There's two other main characters we'll talk about today. The, uh, we're going to talk about Esther and her older cousin, Mordecai. Now, this was the bleak environment that Esther found herself in. Let's go ahead and keep reading Esther chapter 2, verse, starting in verse 7. <clears throat> this man, Mordecai, uh, had a very beautiful and lovely young cousin named Hanassas who was also called Esther. When her father and mother died, Mordecai adopted her into his family and raised her as his own daughter. As a result of the king's decree, Esther, along with many other young women, were, uh, was brought to the king's harem at the fortress of Susa and placed in Haggai's care. Esther had not told anyone of her, national, of her nationality and family background because Mordecai had directed her not to do so. Every day, Mordecai would take a walk near the courtyard of the harem to find out about Esther and what was happening to her. Mordecai was wise and humble. He wasn't ignorant about the world they lived in. Uh, he knew many of the Persians in the empire had a strong dislike of the Jewish people. So as not to diminish her chances of being treated well, Mordecai specifically told Esther not to mention her ethnicity or family background. Now, Mordecai could have easily washed his hands of Esther once she was in the harem, but he continued to maintain relationship and showed genuine care for her well-being. He wanted to be a positive influence for Esther during this time, and Esther welcomed his influence. Let's keep reading. Uh, Esther chapter 2, verse 15. <clears throat> when it was Esther's turn to go into the king, to go to the king, she accepted the advice of Haggai, uh, the eunuch in charge of the harem. She asked for nothing except what he suggested, and she was admired by everyone who saw her. Esther was taken to King Xerxes at the royal palace in the early winter of the seventh year of his reign. Again, I just want to remind us that Esther is in a situation against her will. Uh, the odds of her being picked as queen 
were very small based on the sheer number of women the king saw night after night. However, it is certainly better to become queen instead of just a concubine, or in modern terms, it might be called a side chick, uh, for, for the rest of your life. <laughs> so Esther chose to ask for the influence of Haggai, the official, as to what she should wear. As a direct result of asking for his opinion, he dressed her up in something he knew the king would love. By humbling herself and asking for help, Scripture says she was admired by everyone who saw her. Let's keep reading in verse 17. Check this out. The NIV says it like this. Now the king was attracted to Esther more than any other woman, and she won his favor and approval more than any of the other virgins. So he set a royal crown on her head and made her queen instead of Vashti. It worked. The king made her queen, and suddenly she goes from being an immigrant orphan to the queen of the strongest empire in that time. Wow. So that's the first part of this story. The question I'm sure you're asking as you're listening or watching this right now is, okay, Theo, but what do I do with this information? What, what do I take away with this today in the year that I'm living in? Who is influencing you? We're all being influenced by individuals and groups and society as a whole. None of us are above influence. The question is, do you know who's influencing you? Here's a couple of questions I want us to consider as we're wrapping up here today. Who has influenced your understanding of the value of men and women? Let me be clear. God values men and women equally. Jesus sacrificed himself not only for men, but all of humanity, men and women included. Women, let me just talk to you for a moment. You are the crown of creation. God created everything in the world, the sun, moon, stars, fish, plants, and all that stuff. He created man, and he said, you know, it's not good for man to be alone. He wasn't done yet, and he then created his final masterpiece, which was women. Ladies, you embody so many characteristics of our amazing God. He created you with the same care he created men. And I just want to say I'm sorry that over the course of all of humanity, women have struggled to be valued as the treasures you are. Here at Restore, we value you. And Jesus values you. Men, each of us, let me talk to the men for a second. Each of us needs to treat women as the image bearers of God as they are. And how you talk about women, and how we work with women, and how we treat women, and how we pay women, and how we respond to women, and how we honor our mothers, and how we honor our wives, and how we respect the women we're not in romantic relationships with, and what we say about women on the internet when we think we're being anonymous. Sometimes we 
look in Scripture and we see men who have multiple wives or treat women poorly. You see, the Bible, the Bible records a lot of what happened, but that's, that's descriptive. It's not prescriptive. It's not prescribing that men have multiple wives. It's, just, it's simply describing what was happening at that time. And God can still move in the brokenness of the world, even though people aren't following him in their fullness. God's design for relationship is found in Scripture, and it's fullness within the New Testament, which is one spouse for each other. It's a high bar for sexual ethics. God describes sex as mysterious, and we shouldn't cheapen it by simply thinking of it as mere bodies achieving pleasure for a short period of time. I love how the New Testament clarifies that husbands are to love their wives as Christ loved the church. How did Christ love the church? Christ Christ died for the church. Christ gave up his very life. Christ lived his life every single day for the church. And that wives are to love their husbands. It is equal. And I love that. Uh, let's, let's move on from here. Uh, show me, here's another thing that we need to think about. Show me your friends and I'll show you your future. People, the people the king surrounded himself with were not concerned about making the king's decisions wise. They were just wanting to keep, stay in power and keep, keep the king happy. Who are the people you're surrounding yourself with? When you log into social media, who are the top 10 accounts you see most often? Those are the ones you've chosen to influence you, to to follow and and help the uh, social media apps to to, um, their algorithms to influence you. Are they influencing you positively or negatively? If you want different friends, what are you gonna do about it? If you want different influences in your life, Who are you going to unfollow today? Jesus has such an amazing life and mission and purpose for you hearing everything that I'm saying right now. And who we allow to influence us is either going to lead us on that path God wants us on, or it's going to lead us away into a life of mundanity and a life of, we might have some fun, but it's not going to achieve the heights that he put you on this planet to do in this age and time. The last thing I'll say is this. We need to practice self-awareness. The king was not self-aware enough to know he was drunk and probably shouldn't make rash decisions in the moment. The king was not self-aware enough to know he had surrounded himself with people who weren't going to tell him the truth. Esther was self-aware enough that she sought the advice of Mordecai and the king's officials. Are you self-aware? Do you know who you've surrounded yourself with? How do you become more self-aware? Well, you've got to ask people for honest feedback and don't flip out when they tell you things you don't want to hear. Who's influencing you? Who's influencing your family? Who's influencing your kids? Who's influencing your thoughts on critical cultural issues? Unless you pause and you take an inventory of your life and you ask serious questions, 
about who's influencing you. You may not find the ultimate purpose that God's put you on this earth for, for this year, for the next five years, or for the next 40 years. Figure it out. Don't be blinded simply because you have a group of friends that all say something is normal or consistent. No, who's influencing you? Does it line up with what scripture is? And is it helping to propel you into what God's calling you to do? Join us next week uh, as we have now set the stage for our true villain of the story to emerge. Let's pray. Dear God, I thank you so much for this story. I thank you that we are digging into the rawness of it and, um, and discovering different principles for our lives in the 21st century. Jesus, I pray for every middle schooler, high schooler, young adult, senior citizen out there that we would consider who we're letting influence us. God, I pray we would be open to asking for feedback from people older than us, people wiser than us. We would ask for feedback from people different from us so that we can have a better understanding of who we are, so that we can make wise choices and we can do what you've put us on this planet to do. God, thank you so much for the book of Esther. And I pray we'll continue this journey together. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.